Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You too can become a patron of Sly Flourish and help support shows like this. Patrons get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting material, previews of upcoming stuff, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. You can find out about how to become a patron by clicking on the patron Patreon link in the show notes below. Yeah, we got a lot of fun things to talk about today. So it is December. We're in a new month. So we have new Patreon questions, which we will get to. But I have a big, big agenda. I've got an agenda to talk about today. So let's talk about the Lazy DM's Companion for a minute. The Lazy DM's Companion was a Kickstarter I ran in October. You are still able to pre-order it if you did not get it on the Kickstarter. Links to pre-order it are also in the show notes below. And if you pre-order it, you will get all the same stuff that uh, I'm going to talk about here. The main thing you don't get is some of the better deals on some of the other products. So uh, backer kit surveys have been sent out. So everybody who backed the Kickstarter should have received a backer kit survey. I say should because lots of people didn't. And there's reasons why. Four out of five patron backers have completed their survey. We're like 81% 81 or something like that. So that's great. Lots and lots of people have filled out their backer kit survey. And the cool bit is the minute you complete your survey, you get access to all of the digital products, including Lazy DM's companion public draft release, which is this right here. It is 59 of the 64 pages that will be in the final 65 pages. I think it'll be 65 pages because the cover counts as a page. And the back cover probably counts as a page, so maybe it's 66 pages. And it's everything in the book, fully designed, fully laid out, fully edited, except for some of the art. So about, about half the art is in here. And you can see, like, I'm... I've been working so focused on it that sometimes for me to sit back and look at it, it's got a lot of really great stuff in here. Obviously, I like my own book. Shocker, right? And I'm not really one of the like, oh, I can't stand anything I've ever done. No, I like my stuff. And boy, we pack a lot of stuff into this book. So all of these different one-page guidelines for all kinds of different things, plus all different kinds of generators to help you build your campaign. So it's, you know, 66 pages isn't exactly a huge doorstopper as far as a book is concerned, but I think you're going to find a lot of material to use in this book in a pretty condensed format. That was really our design. So you can see the layout is all very solid. This has everything in it that was not, it says all the stuff that isn't in the preview. You can, if you want to see it and see what it's like, there is a preview you can take a look at. Ah, so Calicverse asks the big question, what should you do if you did not uh, get the survey? You should go to, and I should put this URL somewhere. I'm, I'm probably not going to put it in the show notes because it's not for, you know, it's not for the general public, right? It's for backers. But if you go to slyflourish.backerkit.com, Right, it will say, "Hey, put in your Kickstarter email address, the one that you used for your email, and you click get your survey, and you will you'll get a survey sent to that email address." Now, the tricky bit is, I th I think that should let you go straight into the survey. It doesn't mail you the survey at that point. You can put in your email address and go straight to the survey and fill it out, and that works well. The so why have we? I'll paste that into the link. Just save you a click if you want to click. So we found a few reasons why people weren't getting the email address. One, one does like spam guards pick things up and you never know what's going to be grabbed. And that, that can be trouble. The uh, other reason we found for about 50 people is that they're using internet relay email addresses. I think Apple lets you select a option to say, don't share my email address with third parties. And what that actually does is creates a relay address that only lets you receive email from the domain you're using it on, which isn't backer kit. So a lot of people suddenly said, 
uh, they can't use, they can't, a lot of people say that it can't, that they don't then receive the email. They can't receive the email from Backerkit and then they need their email address fixed. So you don't necessarily need your email address fixed. I think if you click that and you put in the address you use for Kickstarter, you'll still be able to get to your survey. So hopefully everybody, everybody gets their, everybody gets their survey. Uh, yeah. So that is that the Backerkit serve the draft. Oh, and you get access to this right away. So this, this 59 page preview, it's not a preview, right? It's the book. It's the book. It's all of the content of the book. It just doesn't have all the art and all the maps yet. We're still working on art and maps. And all of it is here. And it's fully edited. It's fully designed. It's fully developed. Everything is in here. The only things we're going to be changing are tiny little typos if we find them. But so far, we haven't found any because we did a lot of work ahead of time. And But you can get access to that right away. You can get access to that the minute you either pre-order the book or if you're a Kickstarter backer by filling out your survey. You also get access to all of the other digital rewards. So anything else that you added as an add-on, and some of them were pretty good deals. I think every book that was $15 normally is $10 if you're a Kickstarter backer. And you can add all of those digital add-ons. And as soon as you finish your survey, you will get access to all of those digital rewards. You can download all of them. It's all the books, all the map packs, all the stuff that is included. Uh, and that is great. The one thing that we're sp- uh, it's going to take us a couple weeks is the sending out the drive-through RPG links. So we want to be able to send out links so that everybody can add it to their drive-through RPG library if you happen to have it. You don't need to if you don't want to. You can just download it straight from Backerkit. But if you have a drive-through, a lot of people who have drive-through RPG would like to add them to their library. That is a manual process. So we are, we, we, you know, we have to do it over and over again. So we're waiting for most people to fill out their surveys before we do that because we're going to have to do onesies and twosies and we don't want to do that forever. So we're probably we're going to wait until we've locked the kits and or yeah locked the locked the rewards and that doesn't mean that new people can't come in or that if you didn't fill out your survey you can't fill it out at that point it just means everybody who has filled out their survey bang it, the survey is completed and locked in and then we are you're probably going to get a if you ordered a lot of books you're going to get a lot of emails from drive through because i don't think there's a way for me to consolidate a number of different products in one email because everybody had like different orders and i can't do 300 different permutations of all the possible orders that somebody could have done. So more more likely it's going to be, you know, it's going to be individual links for each of the books that you bought. And you can add them to DriveThruRPG. If you don't care, you don't care. We expect to have the full final PDF of this done by the end of January. All of the art and all of the maps have been commissioned. We end up commissioning a bunch of maps from a bunch of different cartographers, very skilled people, really cool maps, very excited for what we're seeing from the previews that are coming back. But everybody's got a schedule. A lot of people are taking time off for the holidays. So it looks like we're going to be getting most of the art in by the middle of January. And we expect to get all the maps and everything in the PDF by the end of January. That will go out to all backers. I think everybody that backed it that didn't just put in like a couple bucks, anybody that backed any of the pledges will get access to the final version of the PDF by the end of January. And they'll have all the art and all the maps. And there'll be a map pack available as a separate download so you can get all the maps and put them into a VTT. That is great. We are also working with printers. Uh, I am still picking out paper styles and we're still trying to figure out exactly how many copies we're going to need and what part of the world. One of the things I'm pondering is trying to get the book printed with different printers in different parts of the world so that we don't have to ship giant pallets of books across the sea. We're still figuring all that out. Global pandemic, global supply chain issues all aside. Like one of the things is like, oh, great. Like I'm, you know, very smart. Like let's pick printers that are inside the continent that you're going to do. But guess where they're getting their paper from, right? And the paper is on a big cargo container. So there's, you know, supply chain is really hard. But I expect that we will be able to get the print versions of the book out in the middle of 2022, around the middle of 2022. We're going to have to see. 
So yeah, lots of stuff going on. All right, so that's the Lazy DMs Companion. I, uh, thank you very much. And again, this is available for everybody. So if you did not get in on the Kickstarter, you can go and you can pre-order it and it's and, and get access to it as well, including access to the current draft copy. I call it a draft copy, but boy, it's pretty close to a final. It just doesn't have the art. So it's really cool and we can get access to it. It's great. I did a couple of interesting polls and my wife, my, my wonderful and beautiful wife brought up a suggestion, which I really liked and we ended up doing. So a while ago, I had asked dms i think we start with the dm poll this is back in october and there was a lot of talk about do dms fudge hit points during a fight right there was there, there's been a lot of talk about people who like don't even track hit points and then people who say like you're lying to people if you do that's the worst thing you could possibly do lots of different stuff going on with that topic and i was like oh, i wonder what people do right so let, why don't we pull it so I, I did a poll on twitter and said you know this is a poll for dms dnd dms are you willing to change a monster's hit point total after combat has begun Right. Very straightforward poll done in October 2021. And the answer was 92% said yes. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, boy, a lot of angry people were talking about how they would never do such a thing. It's completely dishonest and ruins the game. And you're like, well, it turns out that's about 8%. Right. So that was it's not all DMs. Right. It's just the ones that answered the poll. But it's still 1300 people is a reasonable amount of people. But it could be, oh, no, only the people that answer Sly Flourish's poll are, you know, the people that answer Sly Flourish's poll, they're all a bunch of liars. So that's why it's that way. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. But anyway, that was interesting. But then the question was, what, what do players think, right? What's the player side of this equation? Then the player poll, I guess I linked to the direct one, but it's also in the thing. Uh, poll for D&D DM players. For only 490 votes on this one, which is kind of interesting. Do you know or recognize that your DM is fudging monster hit points during a battle? And 66% said no. Two, two out of three players said no, I don't know that they're doing it. And then one out of three said yeah, they're a bunch of liars, right? And so I thought I thought that was an interest. I don't really know how to balance these two things. I think it's pretty interesting that nine out of 10 polled DMs are willing to fudge hit points, but two out of three players, or what is that out of 10? Six out of 10, roughly. You know, six out of 10 players don't recognize that you're doing so. And that feels to me like a nice sweet spot. Now, do the people that know you're fudging him, do they care? They might not care, right? That might be, that might be fine. So I think that is an interesting poll. But I liked, I liked sort of the, the, the fun of the dichotomy, you know, the, of this poll. I thought that was... I thought that was a good time. If you want to see, uh, I, will link, I will link to these polls down below, including if you ever want, like, if you like polls, right? If you're interested in like, hey, what are the people in the world of D&D think? Or at least the people that we can actually, that Mike Shea can survey. Uh, I have this article called Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition Facebook and Twitter Survey Results. I started back in 2017. It's based on surveys that I did back in 2016. But I have done lots and lots of polls on lots of different questions in the world of D&D. And you can... You know, do people, do DMs sit or stand, right? Uh, 6% stand, 33 out of 10 sit, and about 6 out of 10 sit. Ah, sometimes I sit, sometimes I stand, right? Back in 2018. So lots of fun polls here if you want to kind of see like, hey, what do people do? If you have ideas for polls, you can let me know. I don't want to write like specific polls. I like general purpose D&D polls that kind of help us all understand where like, you know, where things are going in D&D. Yeah, I, anyway, I thought that was a very interesting, I thought that was an interesting time. There was a interesting controversy, I guess it's a controversy, that came up this past this past week for a spell called Silvery Barbs. Silvery Barbs is a new spell that is coming out and I don't, I, let's see if I can find it. So Silvery Barbs is a spell that is going to be in Strixhaven, which is coming out this week. 
right? And it is a first level spell available to wizards, sorcerers. Oh, this is, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong one here. There we go. Whoops, what did I just do? It is a, it is a first level enchantment spell available to sorcerers, bards, and wizards. It takes a reaction to cast. When a creature you can see within 60 feet of you succeeds in an attack roll ability check. 60 foot range. You distract the triggering creature and turn its momentary uncertainty into encouragement for another creature. This triggering creature must re-roll the d20 and use the lower result. It does not impose disadvantage, I guess because you've already seen the initial result. Run reaction when you take when a creature you, you can see within 60 feet succeeds on an attack roll ability check or saving throw. So based on the reaction, you couldn't use disadvantage. And I guess it's instead of imposing disadvantage before the roll which might have been better, right? They are doing essentially another thing, which means this stacks with disadvantage, which isn't great. And then you choose a different target creature you can see within range. You can choose yourself. The chosen creature has advantage in the next attack roll, ability check, or saving throw it makes within one minute. A creature can be empowered only by one use of this one, one of this time. I think DM had an article where he talked about it. I think... He, so he said, I'm banning it. But then he wrote a thing saying every, you know, saying, why are people banning it? And it's like, well, you, you, aren't you one of them? Uh, and he talks about, you know, here's a big, long article. Oh, look at this, right? Ooh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Big article. I'll link to this article. I haven't actually read this article. Uh, I think he updated it since I actually posted this. So is that yesterday? He wrote this yesterday. And I didn't, I, I added it to the list before then. So I think he's updated this. But he talks about why this spell is so overpowered, right? And I kind of agree. You know, it looks pretty powerful because it stacks with disadvantage, which means if you have like a sorcerer can kind of force somebody to have disadvantage. And then if they happen to succeed, you can then hit them again. That's a lot. It's a reaction and it's only first level, which means you can do it a lot, especially at higher levels. You're going you're gonna to do it a lot. And so it's sort of another like permissive blue deck kind of spell that, you know, DM, like DMs want to see stuff happen. And the idea of like, oh, you locked down my big boss. Oh, he made his save. You know, oh, no, he failed. Right. Somebody on Reddit. So there was a Reddit thread on this as well, where they talk about the details of this. Some in the comments, there were some pretty interesting points that about how it stacks with other abilities and, and gets really uh, goofy. But somebody brought up the point that it's essentially letting you double cast a spell or you can cast a, the same spell as a reaction, right? And the idea was like, if I cast Banish on somebody and then they succeed on their save, I can just essentially use this to cast Banish again as a reaction, as a first level spell, right? And that it, it kind of, you know, it's more than like casting banish a disadvantage because you might not need to roll at a disadvantage. It might fail on both checks, right? But this one is an after the fact. So you know you're only going to use it when it's actually going to matter. Not to mention the kicker. Not to mention it also gives advantage to somebody else or including yourself, right? So somebody brought up the fact that like, you know, there's lots of different interactions with this and it's a pretty problematic, you know, potentially problematic spell. You know, is it better than shield? Like, do we need a spell better than shield? Like, holy cow, shield is crazy, crazy good. Right? It's a really powerful spell. Do we need something that's like as powerful as shield, right? Especially as a reaction. And my answer, yeah, I don't think you do. I, he talks about in the article about it affecting legendary resistance. And he says it's not clear that Silvery Barbs, how Silvery Barbs interacts with legendary resistance. To me, the only reasonable 
uh, answer is that it doesn't interact with legendary resistance because legendary resistance isn't a role. Right. I, I use legendary resistance to automatically succeed on a saving throw. I didn't make a roll. Right. So I'm pretty sure I think he brings up the point that like, you know, I think he makes, you know, he, he brings up the fact that, yeah, like because it's not a roll, it doesn't count. But like, it's not clear. Right. He's saying like the point is that it's not clear that if you read this one reaction, you take when a creature you succeed with yourself succeeds on an attack roll. Right. Or saving, it succeeds on a saving throw, right? A run reaction, which, you know, deteriorating freedom, let's re-roll the d20 and use a little, but he didn't re-roll. So, like, it's not clear in the spell, but, like, anybody, I think the intent is that, no, it doesn't work on legendary resistance, right? You can't use this to force somebody to fail a legendary resistance because you can't, legendary resistance auto-succeeds. So there's no reasonable, I don't think there's any reasonable path where you could say, no, this should have, this should trigger on the legendary resistance because it doesn't make sense. That's all fine and good. But I actually think there's a bigger topic here, right? And to me, the bigger topic is if, uh, is, right? So you can choose to do whatever you want to do in your game. I was talking to a DM. I had lunch with a DM yesterday. We had a group lunch and there are five of us and one of the other guys is a DM and he and I got talking about DM stuff. And it was pretty clear that not only does he allow lots of material in his game, including stuff from like Wild Mount and other source books, but he actually allows Unearthed Arcana stuff in his game, right? He uses lots of stuff in his game. So it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's a reasonable approach if he wants to do that. But I think I, I am certainly taking the approach. And I looked back and I was like, I think I've taken this approach now for a couple of years. And it's been in my one page campaign summaries that I limit the source material I allow for character creation. Right. And I don't think it's a draconian principle to say, I don't want Loxodon chronomancers in my game. Right. Or I don't think a Loxodon chronomancer fits in this particular game. And so I, I think that like, it, you know, you, we should be free to have that option. If you want to run with everything, go with the gods, but you're probably going to see some weird stuff. I would also argue that since Tasha's, I don't trust wizards to put out stuff that fits well into everybody's game. And certainly I don't trust them to fit stuff that works well in my game. All of the books very clearly state that they are all optional. It's the DM's prerogative to include what they want to include and not want to include. So we are not, you know, we are not out of the... You know, we're not out of bounds by saying, oh, you know that Fizban stuff? Yeah, you can't just choose Fizban stuff, right? It's like, unless we say, like, we're running a draconic campaign with a lot of draconic influence and Fizbans is one of the sources that we're going to use for our game, which is perfectly fine. Likewise, if you're saying, I'm going to run a Strixhaven game, then obviously you'd say we're going to use the Strixhaven character stuff, right? And you could say it's going to be Player's Handbook plus Strixhaven, right? No Loxodons, no crazy Ravnica stuff, no classes from Wildmount. You know, it's just going to be stuff from Player's Handbook and Strixhaven, right? I don't think that's an unreasonable way to go. I actually think that's interesting, right? I think that it, it means that you're going to see interesting characters that you wouldn't normally see because it's not the smorgasbord of everything. So I feel like we are in a good state to take an opt-in approach for the books that we allow in the game that we have. And then we don't have to worry about, is Silvery Barb's going to suddenly show up in my game and change everything, right? Instead, we can say, no, we're going to let the book, we're going to understand it and look at it. And if we like things in it, the other thing I think we should feel free to do is I think we should feel free as DMs to bring in stuff from other books when it makes sense inside the story and as kind of rewards. So I did bring in some Fizban stuff into my, I brought in Fizban stuff and I brought in Ravenloft stuff into my, into my Rime of the Frostmaiden game because it was cool. So we have Dampiers, right? We have interesting 
sort of interesting class stuff. I used a lot of the draconic stuff in my Wednesday game. I had a dragon lair and I had material that brought in. So you, we can use that other stuff. And I think you could even say like, wouldn't it be cool if somebody found an ancient tome as a reward and in that ancient tome was this spell, Silvery Barbs, a custom spell lost for the ages. And now one of your characters can get it, right? And now they can use it and now it's cool. It's like getting an overpowered weapon, right? It's like getting something cool. So in this way, you could still use this stuff. This is something I actually really like from, need a drink. This is something I really like about the Level Up 5e, Level Up Advanced 5e books that just came out. These are N-Worlds, kind of new take on 5th edition, right? It's a full, three full books that, that sort of can replace different books from 5e, including the whole thing. And one of the things they do that I think is really cool is they have spells as loot. They actually have like upgraded spells as loot. So you can get like a regular fireball is 66, but the crazy unique fireball reward that you can pick up in a dragon's lair is 8d6. I think they should have stuck with 8d6 on a fireball. I don't think it's that bad. So I like that idea. And actually we can just draw that right into our game with any of the books. And it doesn't have to be Watsy books. So there's the book Deep Magic by Kobold Press. It has like a thousand spells in it, right? Dig into that. Bring in some of those weird spells, right? Bring in strange things that they find on scrolls. And you get to, you know, it isn't the thing where you say, we're going to now allow all the deep magic spells. So now every character has, you know, tons of stuff coming. Instead, you could say, no, we're going to allow like one spell at a time, right? We're just going to allow like psychic lance, right? So there's a lot of talk about, there's a, a lot of talk about Ralathim's psychic lance. A fourth level spell takes an action to cast. Uh, it does a pile of damage, 76 psychic damage, and can incapacitate the target if they fail their saving throw. That's a pretty powerful spell. I don't. My friends uh, Sean Merwin and Teos Abadia were talking about this spell, and they've been talking. They've been doing a really excellent deep dive into Fizzbands. So if you want to hear a, a really good commentary from two very smart D and D guys about this book, listen to the Mastering Dungeons podcast. I will link to the. I will link to it below, and they have some really. Cool cool takes and really good thoughts. And they thought, they looked at this and said, man, and I think Teos brought up like, boy, somebody at Watsi really loves the incapacitated condition because there's a bunch of it inside of this book, right? And it's not, but I look at it, it's like, it's not that bad. First of all, it's a fourth level spell, which means the characters are like seventh level before they can cast it. So monks already have stunning strike, which is worse than this. You already have hypnotic pattern. You already have a lot of stuff. And the hypnotic pattern doesn't have a save at the end. This only lasts one turn. It's not a big deal. So I don't see this as a big deal, but it's like, you know what? I don't know that I want everyone to just immediately have access to this, right? Instead, I want them to find this spell in a dragon's horde, right? I want them to, to so uh, Bard Sorcerer, Warlock Wizard. So like, I want it like embedded in a crystal, right? And inside that crystal, a, a wizard or a, I don't know, do bards scribe spells? I don't know how that works. But basically the crystal can give you access to this spell, but it's a reward. It's a piece of loot. Right, so thinking of spells as loot, I think is a really fun way to bring this stuff into the game without just saying like, you can be anything and now you got every weird combination of stuff. So I really think that being able to, I think that taking that opt-in approach is something that I, I think I recommend it. Of course you get to decide, right? I'm not, I don't think it's like everybody that's not doing that is wrong. If you're having fun in your game and your players are having fun, then who cares, right? But you might see some weird stuff from time to time and you're going to be taken off guard and DMs have enough going on without being like, wait a minute, what is this new spell now? You're forcing saves, but is that this event? And there's a lot of arguments about that. So my Sunday group is switching over. We are very close to the end of Rime of the Frostmaiden. We may be one or two sessions away. I don't think we're going to finish it today, but we could finish it 
next week or maybe the week after. I don't know. I don't know how things are going to go. We'll talk about that in today's Rhyme of the Frost Maiden prep. But my group has said, we want to try some other systems. They, my, my player said, how about we try some other systems? And I said, sure. And the first one that came to mind was Numenera. So we're definitely going to run probably a, a bit of Numenera. But I've been sitting on Blades in the Dark for some time now. And I've said, like, I really want to play this game. Like, I hear such good things about it. You, you know, so I, I really, I, I, you know, I want to kind of try it out. And so... I've, my, my players are on board. They said, yeah, that sounds really cool. And I started to take a look at Numenera. So what we're going to do now is a, it's not a deep dive. It's the start of a spotlight, but I have a feeling that I will be digging more into Blades in the Dark as we get closer to actually running it. So the prep show will probably dig in more, but I thought I would talk about Blades in the Dark and give us all sort of an overview based on what I've read. That. So Blades in the Dark is published by Evil Hat and written by John Harper. Uh, John Harper is a fantastic independent RPG creator. He has done a lot of different RPGs, some very small. He did Lady Blackbird, which I'm a big fan of, sort of a steampunk Zeppelin role-playing game. He did Lasers and Feelings, a very quick sort of science fiction, you know, two, two thing you know, two, uh, two attribute system, very creative guy, does a lot. Aegon is another RPG that he's done. So he does a lot of different things. And he did Blades in the Dark, which is probably what he is most popular for at this point. And he did this back in 2017. I can't believe it's four years old at this point. And it is built on the bones of Powered by the Apocalypse games with probably a little bit of I don't know if it's got a little bit of fate, but it's really its own system. I thought it was going to be more focused on power on play on powered by the apocalypse powered by the apocalypse pbta is a system developed for the game apocalypse world and has been used in other game systems as well such as monsters of the week dungeon world and some other variants and it is a three state game where you when you roll your checks you either succeed succeed at a cost or fail. And it's, so it's got a variant that's different than just success or fail on its core mechanic. That's one kind of thing to start with. And so Blades in the Dark is a focused game built around heists. It is a game in which the characters are, how would you describe, what's the best way to describe? The, 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 the characters are scoundrels engaged in some kind of caper. And the caper could be everything from stealing something to an assassination. There's all different kinds of capers that they can go on. And all of the character classes, including the cutter, the hound, the leech, the lurk, the slide, the spider, the whisper. I guess those are the, the core ones. I think let's take a look here. Cutter, hound, leech, lurk, slide, spider, whisper. Yeah, so those are your character classes, right, if you will. And they have, they're each on like one page. This is, they have these sort of playbooks very similar to like Dungeon World playbooks where you, once you pick what your class is, you are given a character sheet to fill in the details of. And that's a very cool, it's a very cool way to go. Now, the other interesting thing is other than just picking a character, you also build a crew, right? And your crew can be like assassins, bravos, cult, hawkers, shadows, and smugglers. And they have different sort of attributes that are available to everybody. There is a sheet for your crew as well. The crew kind of binds everybody together around a particular style. And it has 
you know, the crew has special abilities. I haven't really gotten into like how the special abilities of the crew affect characters. I'm trying to figure that out. One thing about Blades in the Dark is it was shockingly dense when I started digging into it. It is, it's got a lot more going on than I expected. I thought it was gonna be more of a rules light sort of dungeon world style game. But there's a lot going on in this game that I need to get my hands around before I'm gonna feel comfortable running it. That's that makes it a little bit intimidating. It is a dice pool game that uses D6s. And essentially when you want to succeed in an act, when you want to when you're committing a risky act, you roll a D6. On a if you roll a 6, you succeed flat out. If you roll a 4 or 5, you succeed at a cost. And if you roll 1 through a 3, you fail in some interesting way or you succeed at a big cost, right? And your attributes, I'm using that word, I'm using that word loosely, your attributes let you add more dice to your dice pool. So you have probably a few different ways to get up to probably about, it looks like about three dice max, I think, that you can sort of roll on a move, right? That you can roll up to like 3d6, and somebody in chat, if you are familiar with this, is there, are there times where you roll more than 3d6? Four-ish. And if you roll a six on any, you, you take the best die, right? When you, once you roll those rolls, you take which one was best, which means every die you add is sort of like getting advantage and super advantage and triple super advantage where, you know, if you hit that six, you're going to succeed. So the more stuff you can throw in to get you more dice, the more likely you are to be able to, to, to succeed well. And I think if you get multiple sixes, that's like a crit, right? You, you really succeed and you do really well. The rolls drive the narrative of the game even more so than they do in D&D. So you, a lot of this is like approaches, right? You have these different approaches that you're, that you're taking. And the approach is going to dictate like how the success occurred or what happened. And in some cases they have flashbacks. So you can roll a thing to say like, oh yeah, I, that guard that we're worried about, he's on our side. And then you might roll a check to say, did you previously in a you know in hours or days before you know bribe that guard right so you're sort of changing the history of the story based on the roles as well which is an interesting that's a that's a very interesting concept that that i dig the other thing that comes from blades in the dark which is a thing that looks like you could almost grab and throw into any rpg it's a little bit of sort of game prep and people who are fans of skill challenges in 4e i think will really hang on to this idea which is the progress clock progress clocks are ways of having multiple successes or multiple failures or competition between two groups that isn't just one check and one and a one and done check and the way it works in Blades is that you, a simple progress clock would be four sections. You basically draw a circle and divide it into a number of sections. Four, six, eight, things like that. And they're, they're visible. So everybody sees what that progress clock is. And you can use that to have partial successes or partial failures. And it's, it's what's neat about them. And one way that I like the idea of progress clocks more than I like the idea of skill challenges as they were written in the original fourth edition books. People, whenever I talk about skill challenges, people say like, oh, skill challenges are, are great. 4E skill challenges are great. And then you say, well, I didn't like this part. I go, oh, I don't do that part. And you go, what about this part? No, I don't do that either. And then, what about that? No, I don't do that either. And the problem with 4E skill challenges is they were wired around what you were able to do, right? They were preset. Like if you read the ones in the Dungeon Master's Guide for 4th edition, and I did recently, you know, they are very rigid in how they are handled. And you obviously, anybody that played 4E didn't do that eventually, right? 
but you know, when we talk about them here, this is a way to do them that has a lot of flexibility. You, first of all, you create these on the fly. You don't set these out ahead of time. Maybe you're pretty sure, like I'm pretty sure this is gonna work out that way. But you can also drop progress clocks in as an, as a, as an improvisational tool, right? You know, like you're trying to convince a guard. Okay, like, well, one, you know, he's pretty stern, so you're not gonna just convince him once. So we're gonna do a four progress clock, right? And you did it. Oh, you succeeded twice. Well, you got, you know, two of the things are filled out right away. You're doing a great job. Oh, you did it again and you got another critical success, you know, critical success, three, right? It's really neat. It's a really neat tool to be able to add to your game, to your improvisational bag of tricks, this idea of staged successes and put them in for all kinds of things. And there's a bunch of different kinds uh, that they talk about. Simple obstacles, you're just trying to get through it, but it's more than one, you know, like let's say you had a really well-trapped door. You might drop one of those in. Danger clocks, things are escalating, things are getting worse. Groups are getting angrier as they go. You know, these clocks can get, they can take a long time. They could be weeks. They could be done during downtime and take weeks instead of just happening on the spot. Racing clocks, it's, they're ticking down as you're going, all right? Linked clocks, that once one thing happens, another clock shows up. Uh, tug of war clocks, where, you know, it's one clock, but it's going up and down depending on which side is doing what. Faction clocks, cool, you know, but lots of different kinds. And then I think he, they talk about like uh, uh, com combative clocks somewhere in here, I think are, are normal ones, which is essentially like two different clocks that are competing with one another, right? Are the guards going to be aware of your presence before you are able to pick up all of the pieces of blackmail material that you need to pick up, right? And that way you have two that are like, this one needs to complete before this one does, right? It's a really neat style. Very, and think about like, what I love about it. It's like how simple it is. It's a three by five card with a circle that you drew, right? There's hardly any like deep systems. You don't need to print worksheets. There's not tools you have to go buy online or, you know, new roll 20 things that you have to do. Just draw it, right? Just draw it and you're set. So yeah, it is very similar to the success and failures of skill challenges in 4E. It's just you get to, you're building it on the fly and you're not determining how they do stuff, right? That was the real, the, the, the problem with the 4E one is that it determined what skills applied and it was very focused on what it could do. And if somebody cast a spell and flew over your skill challenge, it was done, right? And in this case, it's like, I don't care because it's improvisational anyway. So yeah, if they do that, they succeed in all of them, right? You want fle simple, flexible systems that you can drop into your game right away. And I think the progress clock is fantastic for that. So I really like, I really like that idea. What else do we want to say about Blades in the Dark? I'm still digging into it. So I don't, you know, I'm still getting my hands around it. I'm kind of reading it piece by piece and sort of letting it sink in and getting ideas. Well, let's talk a little bit about the world. There's a lot of stuff I haven't dug into like downtime. The world is a really interesting, where did I, I saw an intro here, the setting, let's go. The setting, the game takes place in the cold foggy city of, of Doskvall. AKA Duskwall, Duskwall or the Dusk. It's industrial and development. Imagine a world like ours in 1870s. Trains, steamboats, printing presses, blah, 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 blah. But it's also fantasy. The world is in perpetual darkness and haunted by ghosts, a result of the cataclysm that shattered the sun and broke the gates of death a thousand years ago. The cities of the empire each encircled by crackling lightning towers to keep out the, the vengeful spirits and twisted horrors of the Deathlands. To power these massive barriers, the titanic metal ships of the Leviathan Hunters are sent out from Doskval to extract ectoplasmic blood from massive demonic terrors upon the ink-dark void sea. I have very rarely read a paragraph of text that evocative in my life. And boy, if you are writing a campaign world, if you're building your campaign world, I challenge you to write a paragraph of text 
like that, that is, that grabs you that much. There is so much going on in that paragraph of text. So many cool things like the, you know, who are these demonic terrors upon the ink dark void sea? What the hell are they about? Right? What are these Leviathan hunters like? You know, those sound really cool. It feels actually, it, it reminds me there's a game video game called dishonored that has a storyline that feels a lot that that feels a lot like this you know a really i i expect a fair bit of influence came from this really cool setting and the book is rich with this setting there is a lot of the material uh, a lot of the material of the book is focused on duskfall right 100 almost like 100 pages yeah it looks close to 100 pages of stuff uh going on talking about duskfall and what's going on what's going on there my only complaint, and you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't really have like a quick start, right? It's not, because I kind of just wanted to try it out, there isn't like a great just try out sort of way to handle this. It is a very rich RPG, richer than I expected it to be. And I, I thought it would sort of be like, you know, let's just roll, you know, let's just quickly grab a character sheet and go, right? And Dungeon World had this approach and Apocalypse World does too. Like both of those are very approachable games. If you like that style of game, you know, here's how to jump in and go. This one, like, there's a lot going on. And as a DM, I am very, as a DM, I am intimidated by it, right? And I'm considering myself a pretty experienced DM. And I'm intimidated to run this, right? It's, it's scary. So I'm, because there's so much, because of the, like, the character sheets and because of how you select attributes and stuff like that, and then like putting on your layer of the crew and making sure you're using that and then running the heist and the history parts. Like, I'm not sure exactly how to prep. Now, granted, I'm still diving in. The Blades in the Dark, this is a set of sheets that is free and available. I will link to this in the notes below that you can both read to kind of figure out how things work on your own, a, a good summary, but also a, a good thing that you can hand to your players so they can get an idea of what's going on. And that's also part of my intimidation is like, not only do I need to learn this enough that I can run a game in it, I also need to learn it enough to be able to teach six other players how to play it who may have different levels of interest in playing it than I do. And so that's kind of tricky. And I think that's something to keep in mind anytime somebody's sort of making an RPG is don't assume you're the end all be all of all RPGs, right? Assume that they are coming from other places and that they want to be able to just try your thing out. You are not as defined as some of the bigger RPGs or uh, particularly as D&D, right? Hey, argue whether you like it or not. The fact is like D&D is the, the road in most of the time, right? And that you know, your game needs to grab somebody and tell them. And I, I think D&D kind of does that, right? Like, I mean, obviously it's easy for me to run D&D. I wonder if I would have the same level of paralysis. Probably I would. If I had never played D&D before, would I have the same level of paralysis that I'm having here? And maybe that's a good thing to learn, right? Maybe that idea of starting with a brand new RPG that I don't feel confident with is reminds me about what it's like to be a new DM for D&D. And then I can see like, oh, what are the hard parts? And what are the parts where we can try to help bring people into the in, into it? So a lot of value in that. I still plan on running it. I'm going to talk to my players about it. And we're going to we're going to see how that goes. So I will be talking more about Blades in the Dark in the future. But I wanted to give my first initial point, first initial thoughts, and I will throw... Uh, throw notes to all of this stuff in the notes. So we have new December patron questions. So uh, every month I put up a comment thread, a, a, a new post on the Sly Flourish Patreon for a particular month to say, if you have any questions that you want to hear me talk about on the show or that you want to see me do a video about or that we talk about on the Patreon, we can uh, go ahead and post your post there. I don't answer every single one of them. And some of them, a lot of them, I will answer directly on the site. Usually ones where I either I don't have an answer, like I don't have a good answer to it. Or if I want to do a video on it, or if I've already answered it. And a lot of times like, oh yeah, no, we've talked about that. And here's a video where we talked about that. 
So let's get into our questions. The first question is from KLK. I have purchased both the digital PDF or D&D Beyond and physical books for the TTRPG authors I support. I've run out of room and my wife is close to officially labeling me a hoarder. I am still buying the physical books for core books and favorite authors, but only the digital for adventures or new systems I want to check out. My question is, how do I convince my wife that we need to finish the basement so I can store more books? You could give the, the, nuclear, the nuclear thought, which is like, you know, books last through a nuclear war, right? I'm in the same boat. My, I don't think my wife has yet labeled me a hoarder. And luckily, our, our house is filled with bookshelves. One thing to consider, one way to deal with this, which is something I do, is I have books leave my collection. I have, unfortunately, I haven't had a good way to get rid of books since, since COVID hit. But a lot of times when I was going to local conventions, I would bring boxes of old books that I, I was 95% sure I wasn't going to want anymore. And give them away, right? And, you know, take them to a library and donate them to, to a library, find other avenues, find local clubs. I, you know, the thing about local clubs is like, if you didn't want it, that doesn't mean a lot of, it means a lot of other people are probably not going to want it either. So don't think you're doing everybody a favor by taking your worst RPG books and giving them away. Give them real, go buy them some real books, right? But, you know, if they're free and you just put them out on a table, if you have a local university or school, you can just say free to a good home, right? And put the books on a big table and and they will, you know, hopefully somebody will find them and read them and maybe they'll pass them along if they don't like them either. So have an, have a out, right? Have a tube that leaves your system so that as new stuff is coming in, there's a way for older stuff or stuff that you're not interested in anymore to go out. Now you do have to kind of look at the book and say, is this really something you want? I gave away a bunch of 3.5 books I really wished I'd kept. So from time to time, there are books that you will give away but i think that's okay like i think probably for every 10 books i've given away only one of them i actually wish i had later and and then you know god forbid i should have to pay 20 bucks and go buy a copy a used copy somewhere so having a way out is pretty good i don't i'm not i don't know that i have good arguments to convince your wife that you need to finish the basement other than you know books are cool right like who doesn't want to be surrounded by books here's another trick about books especially if you have like a, a home theater room or any kind of room with a stereo or audio books are fantastic sound absorbers and sound diffusers they are sound sound diffusers for audio systems are actually can be pretty expensive but if you put bookshelves in the rooms where you have your audio systems they look really nice and they diffuse sound. The sound in your places will sound better. Carpeting for the floor, thick plush furniture, and bookcases are great ways to, to tune a room for audio, for either a stereo, if you have a nice stereo and want to listen to music, or for uh, a home theater. So if you have a home theater room, uh, you can put your books in there. And it works out really well. What other, I don't know if I have any other advice. I think that's about it. They, but that I would say that like, you know, giveaway books and, you know, I think you're on the right path, which is decide what is worthy of having in a physical book and what you can get away with digitally. I am definitely a hoarder for digital products. I must have a thousand RPG products in digital form that I've, that I've picked up over the past few years. Good question. Thank you. Joseph R. Hi, Mike. I loved Alaire, the sentient zombie from your adventure and decided to incorporate him as essential. I don't remember Alaire. Does anybody remember an Alaire that I put in any kind of adventure? In a session, I wanted to introduce him to my character's died. Spontaneous idea. I took him aside if he wanted to play a paladin uh, like a character for the rest of the session. After introducing him to Alaire, my player fell in love with him and decided that he should, this should be his new permanent character. Now I have to decide how Alaire should cure his curse. In my game, Alaire is a devout follower of Kelimvor, and he's a hunter of undead to make his curse more tragic. He thinks it is Kelimvor that has cursed him because his journey is not done, but I am unsure what exactly that Kelimvor wants. I don't really have, so story-wise, I don't have any really input. The one reason why I kind of threw this question in the mix is because there's actually a really good way to bring undead characters into your game now, and that's with the new Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Van, Van Richten's Guide, one thing that isn't, 
overtly clear about Van Richten's guide is that the three origins that exist in Van Richten's. So there's three lineages that exist in Van Richten's guide, the Dampier, the Hexblood, and the Reborn. These are good general purpose origins that you can reskin and reflavor into lots of different things. So a Reborn could be a a golem, it could be a, it, it makes very a good sense to be a zombie person. It can be lots of different, lots of different things. The Dampier, I have two different Dampiers in my Frost Mating game now. One who is a, an actual honest to God half vampire, and one of them is a half mind flayer. But the Dampier state works really well, and it's because like this vampiric bite can be reskinned into lots of different things. It doesn't just have to be a vampire's bite. The origins, if you, you know, the parasite lives inside you and indul indulges your hunger, lots of different ways. What do you hunger for, you know? And our, the Dampier, the, the vampire that we have, one of them is dreams, and another one is cerebral sp spinal fluid because of mind flare. So these are great reskinnable origins that you can use for things like when a player has a character that wants to be a that's a, a zombie who's trying to return. We have a uh, a character in my Wednesday Frostmating game who is a white, right? A W I G H T, right? An undead knight. And we're using the reborn I think it's the reborn version to have this white character and it works really well as far as the storyline with California and stuff like that i don't i really have a great answer for you but i wanted to bring this up because i really wanted to bring up those origins that exist in van richten's guide i think they work really well for that nick how are we on time oh we're good nick says do you use a dungeon crawl procedure like the one outlined in early editions of old school or old school essentials i feel like my dungeon crawls are a little chaotic and i'd like someday to run a game where tracking torches time random encounters are part of the dungeon experience should i just run dungeons as point crawls instead i think it depends on the kind of campaign you're running it depends on what your players are interested in i i, I think that tracking torches and time and stuff like that can be fun the adventure where this can come into play is Out of the Abyss, which I think is the third adventure, the third hardback adventure, not including the two that are actually part of Tyranny of Dragons. And in that one, you start off as prisoners of the drow who escape. And you're in the Underdark and you have nothing. And I remember it was fun to worry about food and light and weapons and clothing and stuff like that up until the point where it wasn't, right? And I think that there is, uh, yeah, so uh, somebody actually bring up Check Out Five Torches Deep, which is a more old school 5e clone that definitely hangs on to that idea of the old school dungeon crawl. I think at low levels and if you are limited on resources, that can be a fun thing to do and to come up with systems like that and probably looking into things like Old School Essentials or Five Torches Deep or other systems that have that. And I'm sure D&D's got it too. I bet you the DMG, because it has lots of stuff we don't always read, the DMG probably has good stuff about how to track that kind of stuff in your game. I think that it's fun up to a point. And then there comes a point where it's like, well, if you have the light spell, do you really need to worry about torches? Right, D, five, the the fifth edition of D and D, I would say, particularly because of spells, does not hang on to that same low fantasy approach of worrying about rations and worrying about lighting and worrying about stuff like that. So I I tend not to run them in that procedural way. I do like to do things like say who's up front, right? What what's the marching order that you've got? What is your lighting? Like how are you handling lighting? I like to know that they have a plan for that, but I don't track 
turns. I think the Dungeon Master's Guide does talk about how to track time when you're doing a dungeon crawl and what to do during those time and like how to worry about things like random encounters. There's definitely an old school way of handling that sort of thing. And you can look into that if you want to try it. And you can try it. And the nice thing is like you don't have to hang on to it, right? Like you can try it and see how it works and then stop, right? And say, we will assume that you are you know, harvesting mushrooms along the way and you don't need food anymore. And that's what happened to my Out of the Abyss games. It started off very minute with tracking of things like light and weapons and food and water, right? And all this stuff. And the book had a lot of options for that. And then eventually it was like they had reached a level of power and the game had reached a kind of a pacing where we didn't need to worry about food anymore. Like we made the assumption that they knew what they were doing. And that way we could focus on some of the, the larger, more heroic stuff. So it's really up to you to decide how much you want to uh, put that kind of thing in play. Hopefully that uh, answered your question. Dave M asks, how do you balance the idea of campaign hooks, the fronts, and the six truths against the spiral campaign method? I really like the idea of the characters forging their own path and discovering what's interesting, but does that run, does that run counterintuitive to the campaign hook? Or is the idea that I'm putting little breadcrumbs in front of them to latch onto that all relate to the campaign hook and the villains? Yeah, so this is, I, I have a video about this and I think I linked the video in Patreon. I will link the video in the, in the notes below as well, where I talk about building, about spiral campaign development. And one of the things about spiral campaign development, at least the way I bring it up, is that it isn't just start with your characters and work outward. It does have a larger, it has two kind of, or three components that exist in the larger area. But they're all pretty quick to do. One, what is the theme of the campaign? What's the main goal, right? Stop Tiamat's rise, kill Strahd, you know, restore the giant's ordning, escape the Underdark. What is the main theme of the campaign that you're running here? And if, if the campaign is, you know, if you're running a more West Marches style where they, it's up to the characters to just kind of drive whatever direction they want, that's fine. I tend to like at least enough of a story to say this thing has happened, right? And we are uh, aiming towards that overall goal. So that's one. That's the elevator pitch. This is all in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, by the way. You can read the chapter on campaign building. It's all there. Two are, what are the truths of your world? And these are the things that are, they can be kind of big, but they, you know, they matter to the characters. So it is sort of spirally, but it's telling the players what's different about this world and different about the campaign we're going to run than all of the other campaigns we run. What are the main things that you could put on a, on a you know, on an index card that tell you what makes this world different. And like, if you look at that paragraph, we were just looking at Blades in the Dark, that shows you like what those things are. But, you know, what are some bullets? And it doesn't, maybe it's only three bullets, maybe it's six. I probably wouldn't do more than six. I'd, I'd try to focus it down on what are the things about this world and about this campaign that make it different. And those could be local if your campaign is mostly local. They could be very wide. Right. If it, and then the third external factor are, are the fronts or the villains, right? Who are the main villains in this campaign and what do they want? Where are they going and how are they getting there? Right. What are the steps that they're taking? What's their goal? Who's the villain? What is their goal and what steps are they taking to achieve that goal? And those are these big sort of floating rocks out in space. They're big. You're probably not going to get involved with them right away but they can show you what else is going on in the world and they are moving, right? They're moving and they're doing things. A villain doesn't always have to be a, an entity. It could be a moon that is crashing into the planet. It could be a cataclysmic event of some sort. It could be storms, but there's some kind of thing you know, that's active and out there and doing stuff and that's changing up the world. And that's, so those are the external components of a spiral campaign development. And then the rest of it is where are the characters right now what's around them, 
right? What is one, what is two horizons out so that you can get an idea? Like we're in a town, it's a rickety old town. It used to be a bustling place, but since the roads have been closed because of bandits, uh, a lot of people haven't been coming here. So they're kind of hard up. And then it's like, oh, and there's, and then there's like three different interesting locations to explore and some quests to go do them, right? And that's sort of the internal part of it. So the question of, is it counterintuitive? I don't think it's counterintuitive. I think you kind of have these two big components. There's the, the campaign starting with the characters and working outwards. But then there's also these like general campaign things. And the general stuff is, what's the theme of the campaign? What are the six truths? And who are the villains and what are they up to? So I think that, I hope that answers your question. I, I don't think it's counterintuitive. I think they go, I think they work hand in hand. And I, I do them in all the campaigns I run. So I know they're working for me. Uh, I've heard other people talk about it. The idea of the spiral campaign development is not unique to me. This is something I've heard for a long time. Many groups have talked about starting with the characters and working outwards. So I think that's great. Jamie says, hello, Mike. My question is about high charisma party face type characters. If a bard with expertise in, a pers in persuasion wants to take the lead on every important conversation, how can I make sure the other players get a chance in the spotlight for social encounters? That is a really good question. One of the tricks that I've used is I will let, if the face character is involved in the situation, when they aid someone else, I will let the person who is taking the front use the bonus of the face character. Because it would make sense mathematically to do that anyway, right? But from a story perspective, like if you have the fighter and the fighter is trying to convince the Lord about something because the player has an idea that they wanna bring up, and the face character, the bard is assisting and says like, I'll assist them with it. And you know, maybe, you know, there's a trick about how the face character is boosting up the fighter and like, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Right. And that all of the charisma that the Lord has with the bard is directing towards the fighter. You could see how that could work out in a conversation and, and mechanics wise, all we have to do is say that the fighter, the player who's running the fighter gets to roll the check, but instead of using their bonuses, they get to use the bonuses of the face character. They get a plus seven to it instead of the plus three that they normally get, which is a little odd, right? It's a little, it's a little different than, than how things work typically, but I think it's a good way to let another player have some time in the spotlight without mathematically hurting them because the face character didn't do it, right? That's one trick. The other one is you don't always have to have it be about roles, right? It's that if, if you can certainly, if, if a player says something, if a player is role-playing their character in a social scene and what they say really makes sense, you don't have to always go with a role. You could just say, no, that makes sense. And also advantage is your friend and you can award advantage for anything, right? So you can say, be, you know, you're making a really strong argument on this. I'm going to let you roll with advantage. And that's the equivalent of a plus five bonus. So even if their charisma sucks, they're still getting a flat plus, roughly a plus five, right? They're getting a nice big bonus when you grant advantage. Now you might say, well, the bard would also get advantage because of stuff, right? And so those are a couple ways. And, and, if, and if that's the case, then maybe you just let, you, you don't bother with a roll, right? You just say, no, that's a really good argument and you convince them, right? Not everything has to be a roll. If you think it works well in the story, let their role play overtake having to make a roll. We don't have to roll all the time. Right. I think that's, I think that's one, one way to do it. Yeah. But that other way of sort of letting, letting the bonus of one, if a character aids them that you can actually use that bonus. Cause it's kind of the same thing, right? You're just basically saying like, oh, well, who's the principal and who's the one offering advantage. You would instead say, no fighter, you get to roll 
you know, you're making the argument, Bard, you're assisting, but because the Bard's assisting, you can use the Bard's bonus and you still have advantage because the Bard is aiding you. It's a little awkward, but it's a good way to say mathematically, we're going to give the bonuses though the Bard did it, but really the fighter is the one that gets the chance in the spotlight. So I think that, I think that's an approach. I have used that approach before and I think it works. So that is it today for the Lazy D&D Talk Show. Uh, I want to thank everybody on, on Twitch today for hanging out with me to chat about D&D. I always love doing it. Thanks to the patrons of Sly Flourish for, for putting in these excellent questions. If you enjoyed the show, there's a few things you could do. You could subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter, subscribe to my videos on YouTube, support me directly on Patreon, or pick up any of my books. And next week, we will be back on again to talk about all things D&D. So thank you very much, and have a great day.